Jag är här nu på Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Welcome to the 356th of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we continue by opening with South with Scott by Edward Evans, who was part of Scott's fabled fatal journey south. And then we'll carry on with the final part of three John Silent stories. Let's head to that white continent. On March 14th, the depot party was joined by Griffith Taylor, Debenham, Wright and Petty Officer Evans. Taylor's team had been landed by the Terra Nova on January 27th after the start of the depot party to make a geological reconnaissance. In the course of their journeying, they'd traversed the Ferrar Glacier and come down a new glacier which Scott named after Taylor and descended into a dry valley so called because it was entirely free of snow. Taylor's way had led him and his party over a deep freshwater lake, four miles long, which was only surface frozen. This lake was full of algae. The gravels below, a promising region of limestone rich in garnets, were washed for gold, but only magnetite was found. When Taylor was thoroughly explored and examined the region of the glaciers to the westward of Cape Evans, his party retraced their footsteps and proceeded southward to examine the Colitz Glacier. Scott had purposely sent Seaman Evans with this party of geologists, reasoning with his usual thoughtfulness that Evans' sledging experience would be invaluable to Taylor and his companions. Taylor and his party made wonderful maps and had a wonderful store of names, which they bestowed upon Peak, Pinnacle and Pool to fix in their memories the relative positions of the things they saw. Griffith Taylor had a remarkable gift of description, and his Antarctic book, The Silver Lining, contains some fine anecdotes and narrative. According to Taylor's chart, the Coetz Glacier and its outflow onto the Great Ice Barrier is at least 10 miles wide. The party proceeded along the north of the glacier for a considerable distance, sketching, surveying, photographing and making copious notes of the geological and physiographical conditions in the neighbourhood. And one may say, fearlessly, that no Antarctic expedition ever sailed yet with geologists and physicists who made better use of the time at their disposal, especially whilst doing fieldwork. This party hung on with their exploration work until Prudence told them that they must return from Coalette's Glacier before the season closed in. Their return trip led them along the edge of the almost impenetrable pinnacle of ice, which is one of the wonders of the Antarctic. Their journey led them also through extraordinary and difficult ice fields that even surprised the veteran sledger Evans. Their final march took them along the edge of the Great Ice Barrier and brought them to Hut Point on March the 14th. We now numbered 16 at this congested station. The sun was very little above the horizon and gales were so bad that spray dashed over the small hut occasionally, whilst all round the low-lying parts of the coast wonderful spray ridges of ice were formed. We had our proportion of blizzard days and suffered somewhat from the cold, for it was rarely calm. Some of us began to long for the greater comforts of Cape Evans' hut. There was no day, no hour, in fact, when someone did not climb up the hillock which was surmounted by the little wooden cross put up in memory of Seaman Vince of the Discovery Expedition, to see and to note the ice conditions. Winter was coming fast, and night shadows of cruel dark purple added to the natural gloom of Hut Point and its environments. 
Wilson was one of the men amongst us who profited most from our sojourn here. In spite of bad light and almost frozen fingers, he managed to make an astonishing collection of sketches, portraying the autumn scenes near this corner of Ross Isle. How sinister and relentless the western mountains looked, how cold and unforgiving the foothills, and how ashy grey the sullen ice-foots that girt this sad frozen land. There was, of course, no privacy in the crowded hut space, and when evening came it was sometimes rather a relief to get away to some sheltered corner and to look out over the sound. The twilight shades and colours were beautiful in a sad sort of way, but the stillness was awful. Whenever the wind fell, light and new ice would form which seemed to crack and be churned up with every cat's paw of wind. The currents and tidal streams would slowly carry these pancakes of ice up and down the strait, until the weather was calm enough and cold enough to cement them together until they formed floes, which in their turn froze fast into great white ice fields, strong enough to bear us and any weights we liked to take along. One often turned in, confident that a passage could be made over the frozen sea to glacier tongue at least, but in the morning everything would be changed and absolutely no ice would be visible floating in this sea. When Taylor's party had rested a little at Hut Point, they threw in their lot with the rest of us, and made occasional trips out on the silent barrier as far as Corner Camp, to add sledge-loads of provisions now and again to the stores already depoted there in readiness for the southern sledge-journey, on which we built our hopes for the ultimate triumph. Eight of us went out for a week's sledging on March the 16th, but the temperatures were now becoming too low to be pleasant, and touching 40 degrees or so below zero. What tried us more than anything else was thick weather, and the fearfully bad light on days when no landmarks were visible to guide us to the depot. Our sleeping bags also were frozen, and uncomfortable, thick rime collecting on the insides of our tents which every puff of wind would shake down in a shower of ice. When sitting round on our rolled-up sleeping bags at mealtimes we could not help our heads and shoulders brushing off patches of this frost rime, which soon accumulated in the fur of the sleeping bags and made life at night a clammy misery. The surfaces were very heavy, and dragging even light sledges when returning from the depot proved a laborious business. This autumn time gave a series of gales and strong winds, which scarcely ever more than a few hours of calm or gentle breeze sandwiched in between. Sometimes we used ski, but there are occasions when skis are quite useless, owing to snow binding in great clogs underneath them. The Norwegians used different kinds of paraffin wax and compositions of tar and other ingredients for overcoming this difficulty. Gran had brought from Christiana the best of these compositions. Nevertheless, there were days when whatever we put on we had difficulty with ski and had to cast them aside. There were people who preferred foot slogging to ski at any time, and there were certainly days when teams on foot would literally dance round men pulling on ski. In the light of experience, however, the expert ski runner has enormous advantage over the foot slogger, however good an athlete. What strikes me here is the dreadful similarity in weather condition, wind, temperature, etc., surface and visibility to that which culminated in the great disaster of our expedition, and resulted in poor Scott's death exactly a year later. Here is a day taken haphazard from my diary. Quote, from Corner Camp to Hut Point. March the 18th, 1911. Called the hands at 6.15, and after a fine warming breakfast started off on ski. The light was simply awful and the surface was very bad, but we did six miles and then lunched. 
after lunch, carried on with a strong wind blowing, but after very heavy dragging we were forced to camp when only nine and a half miles had been laid between us. We really couldn't see ten yards. Just after we camped, the wind increased to about four-six, alternately freshening up and dying away, and a good deal of snow fell. Temperature, 32.5 below zero. End quote. One year later, Scott was facing weather conditions and surfaces almost identical. But the difference lay that he had marched more than 1,600 miles, was short of food, and his party was suffering from the tragic loss of two of their companions and the intense disappointment of having made this great sledge journey for their country's honour, to find all their efforts had been in vain, and that they had been anticipated by men who had borne thither the flag of another nation. When Scott found that we sledgers were getting temperatures as low as minus 40, he decided to discontinue sledging rather than to risk anything in the nature of severe frostbite assailing the party and rendering them unfit for further work. For it must be remembered that we had already been away from our base ten weeks, that many of us had never sledged before, and that the depot journey was partly undertaken to give us sledging experience and to point out what improvements could be made in our clothing and equipment. The first and second weeks in April brought the ice changes that we had so long awaited, and after one or two false starts, two teams set out from Hut Point on April the 11th to make their way across the 15 miles of sea ice to Cape Evans. This turned out to be a somewhat hazardous journey, since it had to be made in the half-light with overcast weather and hard wind. Scott took charge of one tent and had with him Bowers, Griffith, Taylor and Petty Officer Evans, while I had in my party Wright, Debenham, Gran and Crean. The seven who remained at Hut Point in charge of the dogs and ponies helped us out a league or so from the first part of our journey. The route led first up the steep ice slope overhanging Hut Point, and then to the summit of the ridge, which is best described as the Castle Rock Promontory. Our sojourn at Hut Point had given us plenty of chance to learn the easier snow roads and the least dangerous, and Scott chose the way close eastward of Castle Rock to a position four miles beyond it, which his first expedition had named Hutton Cliffs. From Castle Rock onward, the way took us to the westward of two conical hills, which were well-known landmarks, a hitherto untrodden route, but the going was by no means bad. Bitingly cold for faces and fingertips, still no weights to impede us. We camped for lunch after covering seven miles, for the light was bad, but it improved surprisingly whilst we were eating our meal. Accordingly, we put on our crampons about 3pm and struck camp, securely packing the two green tents on the sledges and casting a careful eye round the loads. Tightened a strap here, hitched there, and then, led by Scott, we made a careful descent to the precipitous edge of the ice cap, which overlays the promontory. We got well down to a part that seemed to overhang the sea, and to our delight, found a good solid-looking ice sheet below us which certainly extended as far as Glacier Tongue. The drop here was twenty-five feet or so, and Taylor and I were lowered over the cornice in an alpine rope, and then right and then the sledges, after that the remainder of the party. An ash pole was driven into the snow, and the last few members sent down in a bowline at one end of the rope whilst we below eased them down with the other part. The two parts of the alpine rope working around the pole cut deeply into the overhanging snow and brought a shower of ice crystals pouring over the heads and shoulders of whoever was sitting in the bowline. It was a good piece of work, getting everything down safely, 
and I admired Scott's decision to go over. A more nervous man would have fought shy because once down on the sea ice there was little chance of getting back, and we had got to fight our way forward to Cape Evans somehow. When Taylor and I got first down we were greeted with a weird and wonderful sight. Constant drifts of snow had formed a great overhang and the ice cliff was wreathed in a mass of snowy curtains and folds, which took all manner of fantastic turns and shapes. A fresh wind was blowing continuously that made it most unpleasant for those above, and it was a relief to us all when the last man was passed down in safety. It was Scott himself. We quickly harnessed up again and swung out over the sea ice towards Glacier Tongue, the cliffs of which stood out in a hard white line to the northward a couple of miles away. Arrived at the tongue, Bowers and I clambered up a ten-foot cliff face by standing on Wright's and Crean's shoulders. We then reached down and hauled up the sledges and the others, harnessed up again and proceeded to cross the glacier, which was full of small crevasses. We reached the northern side of it and went down an easy snow slope to the sea ice beyond. As far as one could see, this ice continued right up to and around Cape Evans, seven miles away to the northwest. It was now 6.30pm. Scott halted us and discussed our readiness to make a night march into winter quarters. There was not one dissident voice, and we gladly started off at eight o'clock for a night march to our snug and comfortable hut, picturing to ourselves a supper of all things luxurious. Our feet seemed suddenly to have taken wings. But, alas, the supper was not to be, for thick weather set in, and when by ten o'clock the wind was blowing hard and it was pitch black, Scott suddenly decided to camp under the shelter of a little Razorback Island, where by that time we had arrived. We passed a filthy night there, for the snow on the sea ice was saturated with brine, and in no time our sleeping bags became wet and sticky. Next day we were called at six to find a blizzard with a high drift making it impossible to move, so we remained in our bags until 4pm, when we shifted onto the narrow platform of rock situated on the south side of Little Razorback. We had one small meal here, but our condition was not a pleasant one, since little food remained and fuel was short. There was undoubtedly a chance that the sea ice would break up and drift away in this high wind. Had that happened, we should have been left to starve on that tiny island. The position was not an enviable one, so we got back into our bags, which were, as stated, wet and beastly, after a scanty supper, and then tried to sleep. But our feet were wet too, and cold so that few of us could do more than close our eyes. The night passed slowly enough, and we turned out at 7am to cook what remained of our food before attempting to make Cape Evans. We were glad that it had stopped snowing, and although the light was bad enough, we could just make out the ice foot showing up bold and white on the south side of the Cape. After the meal, we struck camp, formed marching order, and started half-running for winter quarters. Covering a couple of miles, we found to our great relief that the fast ice not only extended up to the cape, but right round to the North Bay. We soon sighted the hut, and shortly after saw some people working outside. Directly they saw us, in they ran to bring the others out at full speed, and coming to meet us they cheered and greeted us, and then hauled our sledges in. It appeared they were unable to recognise any of us, owing to our dirty and dishevelled state. This was not to be wondered at for we had not washed nor had we shaved for eighty days. We all talked hard and exchanged news. Ponting lined us up to be photographed, the first nine Bolshevists, 
and we looked such awful blackguards. Now, April the 13th, 1911, as communication had been established between Hut Point and Cape Evans, we settled down for the winter. I shall never forget the breakfast that Clissold prepared for us at 10.30 that morning. It was delicious. Hot rolls, heaps of butter, milk, sugar, jam, a fine plate of tomato soup, and fried seal cooked superbly. The meal over, we shaved, bathed, and put on clean clothes, smoked cigarettes, and took a day's holiday. At ten o'clock that evening, by pre-arrangement, very lights were fired to let them know at Hut Point of our safe arrival. Our own signal was answered by a flare. Gramophone records were dug out, and we lazily listened to Melba singing and to musical comedy tunes those who had the energy and sufficient inclination got the pianola going. And finally, each man unfolded his little story to another member of the expedition who had taken no part in that sledging. Captain Scott was delighted at the progress made by those left in our hut under Dr. Simpson. Everything was in order, the scientific programme in full swing, and nothing in the shape of bad news beyond the loss of an ill-tempered pony called Hackenschmidt and one more dog that appeared to have died from a peculiar disease, a minute threadworm getting to his brain. This according to Nelson, who had conducted the post-mortem. And now it's time, for the last time, to listen to some silence. But not even the mysterious references to the mummy, or the prospect of a revelation by digging, were able to hinder the reaction that followed the intense excitement of the past twelve hours, and I slept the sleep of the dead, dreamless and undisturbed. A touch on the shoulder woke me, and I saw Dr. Silence standing beside the bed, dressed to go out. Come, he said, it's tea time. You've slept the best part of a dozen hours. I sprang up and made a hurried toilet, whilst my companion sat and talked. He looked fresh and rested, and his manner was even quieter than usual. Colonel Rage has provided spades and pickaxes, we're going out to unearth this mummy at once, he said, and there's no reason we should not get away by the morning train. I'm ready to go tonight, if you are, I said honestly, but Dr. Silence shook his head. I must see this through to the end, he said gravely, and in a tone that made me think he still anticipated serious things, perhaps. He went on talking while I dressed. This case is really typical of all stories of mummy haunting, and none of them are cases to trifle with, he explained. For the mummies of important people, kings, priests, magicians, were laid away with profoundly significant ceremonial and were very effectively protected, as you've seen, against desecration and especially against destruction. The general belief, he went on, anticipating my questions, held, of course, that the perpetuity of the mummy guaranteed that of its car, the owner's spirit, but it is not improbable that the magical embalming was also used to retard reincarnation, the preservation of the body preventing the return of the spirit to the toil and discipline of earth life. And in any case, they knew how to attach powerful guardian forces to keep off trespassers, and anyone who dared to remove the mummy, or especially to unwind it, well, he added with meaning, You've seen, and you will see. I caught his face in the mirror while I struggled with my collar. It was deeply serious. There could be no question that he spoke of what he believed and knew. The traveller brother who brought it here, 
must have been haunted too, he continued, for he tried to banish it by burial in the wood, making a magic circle to enclose it. Something of genuine ceremonial he must have known, for the stars the men saw were of course the remains of the still flaming pentagrams he traced at intervals in the circle. Only he did not know enough, or possibly was ignorant that the mummy's guardian was a fire force. Fire cannot be enclosed by fire, though, as you see it. It can be released by it, though. Then that awful figure in the laundry, I asked, thrilled to find him so communicative. Undoubtedly the actual car of the mummy, operating always behind its agent, the elemental, are most likely thousands of years old. And Miss Rage, I ventured once more. Ah, Miss Rage, he repeated with increased gravity. Miss Rage. A knock at the door brought a servant with word that tea was ready, and the colonel had sent to ask if we were coming down. The thread was broken. Dr. Silence moved to the door and signed me to follow him, but his manner told me that in any case no real answer would have been forthcoming to my question. And the place to dig in? I asked, unable to restrain my curiosity. Will you find it by some process of divination or... He paused at the door and looked back at me, and with that he left me to finish my dressing. It was growing dark when the three of us silently made our way out to the twelve-acre plantation. The sky was overcast and a black wind came out of the east. Gloom hung about the old house and the air seemed full of sighings. We found the tools ready laid at the edge of the wood, and each shouldering his piece we followed our leader at once in amongst the trees. He went straight forward for some twenty yards, and then stopped. At his feet lay the blackened circle of one of the burned places. It was just discernible against the surrounding white grass. There are three of these, he said, and they all lie in a line with one another. Any one of them will tap the tunnel that connects the laundry, the former museum, with the chamber where the mummy now lies. He at once cleared away the burnt grass and began to dig. We all began to dig. While I used the pick, the others shoveled vigorously. No one spoke. Colonel Rage worked the hardest of the three. The soil was light and sandy, and there were only a few snake-like roots and occasional loose stones to delay us. The pick made short work of these, and meanwhile the darkness settled about us and the biting wind swept roaring through the trees overhead. Then, quite suddenly, without a cry, Colonel Rage disappeared up to his neck. The tunnel! cried the doctor, helping to drag him out, red, breathless, and covered with sand and perspiration. Now let me lead the way, and he slipped down nimbly into the hole, so that a moment later we heard his voice muffled by sand and distance rising up to us. Hubbard, you come next, and then Colonel Rage, if he wishes. I'll follow you, of course, he said, looking at me as I scrambled in. The hole was bigger now, and I got down on all fours in a channel not much bigger than a large sewer pipe, and found myself in total darkness. A minute later a heavy thud, followed by a cataract of loose sand, announced the arrival of the colonel. "'Catch hold of my heel,' called Dr. Silence, "'and Colonel Rage can take yours.' In this slow, laborious fashion we wormed our way along a tunnel that had been roughly dug out of the shifting sands, and was shored up clumsily by means of wooden pillars and posts. Any moment, it seemed to me, we might be buried alive. We could not see an inch before our eyes, but had to grope our way, feeling the pillars and the walls. It was difficult to breathe, 
and the colonel behind me made slow progress for the cramped position of our bodies was very severe. We'd travelled in this way for some ten minutes and gone perhaps as much as ten yards when I lost my grasp of the doctor's heel. Ah, I heard his voice, sounding above me somewhere. He was standing up in a clear space, and the next moment I was standing beside him. Colonel Rage came heavily after, and he too rose up and stood. Then Dr. Silence produced his candles, and we heard preparations for striking matches. Yet even before there was light, an indefinable sensation of awe came over us all. In this hole in the sand, some three feet underground, we stood side by side, cramped and huddled, struck suddenly with an overwhelming apprehension of something ancient, something formidable, something incalculably wonderful, that touched in each one of us a sense of the sublime and the terrible, even before we could see an inch before our faces. I know not how to express in language this singular emotion that caught us here in the utter darkness, touching no sense directly. It seemed, yet with the recognition that before us, in the blackness of this underground night, there lay something that was mighty, with the mightiness of long ages past. I felt Colonel Rage pressing closely to my side, and I understood the pressure and welcomed it. No human touch, to me at least, has ever been more eloquent. Then the match flared. A thousand shadows fled on black wings, and I saw John Silence fumbling with the candle, his face lit up grotesquely by the flickering light below it. I had dreaded this light, yet when it came there was apparently nothing to explain the profound sensations of dread that had preceded it. We stood in a small vaulted chamber in the sand, the sides and roof shored with bars of wood and the ground laid roughly with what seemed to be tiles. It was six feet high, so that we could all stand comfortably and may have been ten feet long by eight feet wide. Upon the wooden pillars at the side, I saw that Egyptian hieroglyphics had been rudely traced by burning. Dr. Silence lit three candles and handed one to each of us. He placed a fourth in the sand against the wall on his right, and another to mark the entrance to the tunnel. We stood and stared about us, instinctively holding our breath. Empty! My God! exclaimed Colonel Rage. His voice trembled with excitement, and then as his eyes rested on the ground he added, and footsteps. Look, footsteps in the sand. Dr. Silence said nothing. He stooped down and began to make a search of the chamber, and as he moved my eyes followed his crouching figure and noted the queer distorted shadows that poured over the walls and ceiling after him. Here and there thin trickles of loose sand ran fizzling down the sides. The atmosphere, heavily charged with faint yet pungent odours, lay utterly still and the flames of the candles might have been painted on air for all the movement they betrayed. As I watched, it was almost necessary to persuade myself forcibly that I was only standing upright with difficulty in this little sand hole of a modern garden in the south of England, for it seemed to me that I stood as in vision at the entrance of some vast rock-hewn temple, far, far down the river of time. The illusion was powerful, and persisted. Granite columns that rose to heaven piled themselves about me majestically uprearing, and a roof like the sky itself spread above a line of colossal figures that moved in shadowy procession along the endless and stupendous aisles. This huge and splendid fantasy, born I knew not whence, possessed me so vividly 
that I was actually obliged to concentrate my attention upon the small stooping figure of the doctor as he groped about the walls in order to keep my eye of imagination on the scene before me. But the limited space rendered a long search out of the question, and his footsteps, instead of shuffling through loose sand, presently struck something of a different quality that gave forth a hollow and resounding echo. He stooped to examine more closely. He was standing exactly in the centre of the little chamber when this happened, and he at once began scraping away the sand with his feet. In less than a minute, a smooth surface became visible, the surface of a wooden covering. The next thing I saw was that he had raised it and was peering down into a space below. Instantly a strong odour of nitre and bitumen, mingled with the strange perfume of unknown and powdered aromatics, rose up from the uncovered space and filled the vault, stinging the throat and making the eyes water and smart. The mummy, whispered Dr. Silence, looking up into our faces over his candle. And as he said the word, I felt the soldier lurch against me and heard his breathing in my very ear. The mummy, he repeated under his breath as we pressed forward to look. It is difficult to say exactly why the sight should have stirred in me so prodigious an emotion of wonder and veneration, for I have not had a little to do with mummies, have unwound scores of them, and even experimented magically with not a few. But there was something in the sight of that grey and silent figure lying in its modern box of lead and wood at the bottom of this sandy grave, swathed in the bandages of centuries, and wrapped in the perfumed linen that the priests of Egypt had prayed over with their mighty enchantments thousands of years before. Something in the sight of it, lying there, and breathing its own spice-laden atmosphere, even in the darkness of its exile in this remote land, something that pierced to the very core of my being, and touched the root of awe which slumbers in every man near the birth of tears and the passion of true worship. I remember turning quickly from the colonel, lest he should see my emotion, yet fail to understand its cause, turn and clutch John Silence by the arm, and then fall trembling to see that he too had lowered his head and was hiding his face in his hands. A kind of whirling storm came over me, rising out of I know not what utter deeps of memory, and in a whiteness of vision I heard the magical old chantings from the Book of the Dead, and saw the gods pass by in dim procession, the mighty immemorial beings who were yet themselves only the personified attributes of true gods, the god with the eyes of fire, the god with the face of smoke. I saw Anubis, the dog-faced deity, and the children of Horus, eternal watcher of the ages, as they swathed Osiris, the first mummy of the world in the scented and mystic bands. And I tasted again something of the ecstasy of the justified soul as it embarked in the golden boat of Ra, and journeyed onwards to the rest in the fields of the blessed. And then, as Dr. Silence, with infinite reverence, stooped and touched the still face, so dreadfully staring with its painted eyes, there rose again to our nostrils wave upon wave of this perfume of thousands of years, and time fled backwards, like a thing of naught, showing in me a haunted panorama, the most wonderful dream of the whole world. A gentle hissing became audible in the air, and the doctor moved quickly backwards. It came close to our faces and then seemed to play about the walls and ceiling. The last of the fire, still waiting for its full accomplishment, he muttered. 
but I heard both words and hissing as things far away, for I was still busy with the journey of my soul through the seven halls of death, listening for echoes of the grandest ritual ever known to men. The earthen plates, covered with hieroglyphics, still lay beside the mummy, and round it, carefully arranged at the points of the compass, stood the four jars with the heads of the hawk, the jackal, the cynophallus, and man, the jars in which were placed the hair, the nail, the parings, the heart, and other special portions of the body. Even the amulets, the mirror, the blue clay statues of Ka, and the lamp with the seven wicks were there. Only the sacred scarabaeus was missing. Not only has it been torn from its ancient resting place, I heard Dr. Silence saying in a solemn voice as he looked at Colonel Rage with fixed glaze, but it has been partially unwound. He pointed to the wrappings of the breast, and the scarabaeus has been removed from the throat. The hissing that was like the hissing of an invisible flame had ceased. Only from time to time we heard it as though it passed backwards and forwards in the tunnel, and we stood looking into each other's faces without speaking. Presently Colonel Rage made a great effort and braced himself. I heard the sound catch in his throat before the words actually became audible. "'My sister,' he said very low, and then there followed a long pause broken at length by John's silence. "'It must be replaced,' he said significantly. "'I knew nothing,' the soldier said, forcing himself to speak the words he hated saying. "'Absolutely nothing.' "'It must be returned,' repeated the other. "'If it is not now too late,' for I fear, I fear. Colonel Rage made a movement of assent with his head. It shall be, he said. The place was still as the grave. I do not know what was then that made us all three turn round with so sudden a start, for there was no sound audible to my ears at least. The doctor was on the point of replacing the lid over the mummy when he straightened up as if he'd been shot. "'There's something coming,' said Colonel Rage under his breath, and the doctor's eyes peering down the small opening of the tunnel showed me the true direction. A distant shuffling noise became distinctly audible, coming from a point about halfway down the tunnel we'd so laboriously penetrated. "'It's the sand, falling in,' I said, though I knew it was foolish. "'No,' said the Colonel calmly, in a voice that seemed to have the ring of iron. "'I've heard it for some time past.' It is something alive, and it's coming nearer. He stared about him with a look of resolution that made his face almost noble. The horror in his heart was overmastering, yet he stood there, prepared for anything that might come. There's no other way out, John Silent said. He leaned the lid against the sand and waited. I knew by the mask-like expression of his face, the pallor and the steadiness of his eyes, that he anticipated something that might be very terrible, appalling. The colonel and myself stood at either side of the opening. I still held my candle and was ashamed of the way it shook, dripping the grease all over me. But the soldier had set his into the sand just behind his feet. Thoughts of being buried alive, of being smothered like rats in a trap, of being caught and done to death by some invisible and merciless force we could not grapple with, rushed into my mind. Then I thought of fire, of suffocation, of being roasted alive. 
perspiration began to pour down my face. Steady, came the voice of Dr. Silence to me through the vault. For five minutes that seemed fifty, we stood waiting, looking from each other's faces to the mummy and from the mummy to the hole, and all the time the shuffling sound, soft and stealthy, came gradually nearer. The tension, for me at least, was very near the breaking point, when at last the cause of the disturbance reached the edge. It was hidden for a moment just behind the broken rim of soil. A jet of sand, shaken by the close vibration, trickled down to the ground. I've never in my life seen anything fall with such laborious leisure. The next second, uttering a cry of curious quality, it came into view. And it was far more distressingly horrible than anything I had anticipated. For the sight of some Egyptian monster, some god of the tombs, or even of some demon of fire, I think I was already half prepared. But when instead... I saw the white visage of Miss Rage framed in that round opening of sand, followed by her body crawling on all fours, her eyes bulging and reflecting the yellow glare of the candles. My first instinct was to turn and run like a frantic animal seeking a way of escape. But Dr. Silence, who seemed no whit surprised, caught my arm and steadied me, and we both saw the colonel then drop to his knees and thus come to a level with his sister. For more than a whole minute, as though stuck in stone, the two faces gazed silently at each other, hers for all the dreadful emotion in it, more like a gargoyle than anything human, and his, white and blank with an expression that was beyond either astonishment or alarm. She looked up. He looked down. It was a picture in a nightmare, and the candle stuck in the sand close to the hole threw upon it the glare of impromptu footlights. Then John Silence moved forward, and spoke in a voice that was very low, yet perfectly calm and natural. "'I'm glad you have come,' he said. "'You are the one person whose presence at this moment is most required. And I hope that you may yet be in time to appease the anger of the fire, and to bring peace again to your household, and,' he added, lower still, so that no one heard it but myself, "'safety to yourself.' and while her brother stumbled backwards, crushing a candle into the sand in his awkwardness, the old lady crawled farther into the vaulted chamber and slowly rose upon her feet. At the sight of the wrapped figure of the mummy, I was fully prepared to see her scream and faint, but on the contrary, to my complete amazement, she merely bowed her head and dropped quietly upon her knees, and then after a pause of more than a minute, she raised her eyes to the roof and her lips began to mutter as in prayer. Her right hand, meanwhile, which had been fumbling for some time at her throat, suddenly came away, and before the gaze of all of us, she held it out, palm upwards, over the grey and ancient figure outstretched below. And in it, we beheld the glistening, the green jasper of the stolen scarabaeus. Her brother, leaning heavily against the wall behind, uttered a sound that was half cry and half exclamation. But John Silence, standing directly in front of her, merely fixed his eyes on her, and pointed downwards towards the staring face below. "'Replace it,' he said sternly, "'where it belongs.' Miss Rage was kneeling at the feet of the mummy when this happened. We three men all had our eyes riveted on what followed. Only the reader, who, by some remote chance, 
may have witnessed a line of mummies freshly laid from their tombs upon the sand slowly stir and bend as the heat of the Egyptian sun warms their ancient bodies into some semblance of life, can form any conception of the ultimate horror we experienced when the silent figure before us moved in its grave of lead and sand. Slowly, before our eyes, it writhed, and with a faint rustling of the immemorial cerements, rose up, and through sightless and bandaged eyes stared across the yellow candlelight at the woman who had violated it. I tried to move. Her brother tried to move. But the sand seemed to hold our feet. I tried to cry. Her brother tried to cry, and the sand seemed to fill our lungs and throat. We could only stare. And even so, the sand seemed to rise like a desert storm and cloud our vision. And when I managed at length to open my eyes again, the mummy was lying once more upon its back, motionless, the shrunken and painted face upturned towards the ceiling, and the old lady had tumbled forward and was lying in the semblance of death with her head and arms upon its crumbling body. But upon the wrappings of the throat, I saw the green jasper of the sacred scarabaeus shining again like a living eye. Colonel Rage and the doctor recovered themselves long before I did, and I found myself helping them clumsily and unintelligently to raise the frail body of the old lady, while John Silence carefully replaced the covering over the grave and scraped back the sand with his foot while he issued brief instructions. I heard his voice, as in a dream, but the journey back along the cramped tunnel weighted by a dead woman, blinded with sand and suffocated with heat, was in no sense a dream. It took us the best part of half an hour to reach the open air, and even then we had to wait a considerable time for the appearance of Dr. Silence. We carried her, undiscovered, into the house and up to her own room. The mummy will cause no further disturbance, I heard Dr. Silence say to our host later that evening as we prepared to drive for the night train. Provided always, he added significantly, that you and yours cause it no disturbance. It was in a dream, too, that we left. You did not see her face, I know, he said to me as we wrapped our rugs about us in the empty compartment, and when I shook my head, quite unable to explain the instinct that had come to me not to look, he turned toward me, his face pale and genuinely sad. Scorched and blasted, he whispered. And that's all for today. Except to remind you about my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a naval history on the War of 1812, also Space Viking by H. Beam Piper, and the final volume of Charles Oman's History of the Peninsula War. As a bit of a side job, I'm also narrating the full rules to the role-playing game called Basic Fantasy Role-Playing Game. Please go to patreon.com and search there for Felbrick. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Until next time.